Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Hello, chefs. This is Chef's PSA Podcast. I'm your host, Andre Natera. On today's episode is a special one. It's going to be a little bit different. This is me being interviewed on the Proper Thieves podcast. Stay tuned. Now, before we get started, if you want to support the show, make sure you subscribe if you're watching on YouTube. Hit the like button. On Spotify, make sure you leave five stars. Hit the subscribe button. And by the way, nothing less than five stars. Anything less than five stars is not good for you. Make sure you go to chefspsa.com where you can get all the books, all the merch. Go get the Culinary Leadership Fundamentals book, Line Cook Survival Manual. I just finished a new one. It's free ebook, The 50 Most Important Chefs PSAs. It's also available on audio. Make sure you go get that. Today's episode is a little bit different. I did an interview a couple weeks back with some friends on the Proper Thieves podcast. We covered a lot of subjects on that episode, everything ranging from the culinary world to leadership to business, marketing. We talk philosophy. We talk MMA fighting. You get to learn a little bit more about me. And so I wanted to break up this episode a little bit by giving you the first 30 minutes of that interview. If you want to see and listen to the complete interview, I'm going to link them in the show notes. You could watch it on YouTube or you could listen on Spotify. Make sure you go like and subscribe their channel as well, Proper Thieves Podcast. Good friends of mine, Andrew and Corbin, I expect big things from their podcast soon. So without further ado, let's get into it. For many years, I had access, some, you know, some of my friends are the best chefs in the world or the country. And it's easy for me to pick up the phone with a three Michelin star chef or a chef in Europe that I'm good friends with or people that have worked under me and just shoot the shit and have those mentors and have those relationships. And I didn't realize how much of a bubble I'm in because most chefs don't have access to mentorship and guidance. And so what I did with Chef's PSA is I wanted to be the mentor unofficially and give people the information and knowledge and and let them see the wizard behind the curtain and, and bring them into the room of the things that are discussed that they might not even be aware are discussed and coach them through their career. So my mission is to help cooks become chefs and to help chefs become great chefs. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, it's a different angle than just cooking. Yeah. Here's this recipe. Here is how to make this. It's it's a different audience you have. So if you remember during COVID, you guys aren't chefs. You weren't like consuming all the chefs' social media. But yeah. during COVID, every chef was doing like a cooking demo. Let me show you how to sear a steak. Let me show you how to make a salmon. And I realized I that if I wanted to help people, some of the best chefs in the world were teaching you how to cook steaks and fish and everything else. No one's teaching you how to run your kitchen. No one's teaching you the leadership fundamentals. No one's teaching you how to deal with difficult situations, how to overcome adversity when times are tough. No one's teaching you that. So I could teach you that because, sure, I could also teach you how to cook a steak or a fish or whatever, but why would you watch me versus Gordon Ramsay when we're both, when we, I'm not going to show you anything different than he's showing you. So it's, no one's showing you how to 
how to be a chef. So I'm going to give you those skills that you need to be a chef and run your kitchen and be successful and market yourself and all these other things that don't get discussed. You've heard that joke like when you were in high school, sure, thank you for teaching me the Pythagorean theorem, now how do taxes work? (laughs) None of that stuff matters when you get into the real world. So that's what happens in the chef world is you know so much about cooking, but then you're put in the position of head chef and I don't know how to lead, I don't know how to manage food costs, I don't know how to hire people, I don't know... I don't, have, I don't know how to build a strategy or a marketing plan. It was like, that's where I come in. Because I'm going to teach you those things that they didn't teach you behind the line when you were cooking. Mm-hmm. It's like taking a fighter and like managing him or making him professional. Yeah. Even though he's got the talent, there's a whole world behind the backside of promoting yourself and getting into organizations and working your way up and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. I know so, we wanted to talk about this. Can we kind of talk about how it's so similar, like the hierarchy from fighting to how it works in the kitchen? Yeah. So I, let, let me say this first of all. Because if people are like, what, do you, what the fuck do you know about fighting? <laughs> yeah. Are we allowed to cuss on <laughs> maybe, maybe I should say how I met Andre. I met Andre when I was 16 years old. This was 23 years ago, almost 24 now. And I walked into my first kickboxing gym, and I wanted to do kickboxing. And they are like, we have Muay Thai and MMA. And I was like, I guess that's close enough. So I haphazardly walked into Muay Thai. Andre was a student there, and he was like, there was the teacher, Mike, and then Andre was like the best student, and then everyone else. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, but Andre was just a cool dude and we trained and we, you know, he's, oh, I'm also chef. And then he had found out he's like this super high level chef, you know, blew me away. Uh, you were at the, uh, some hotel, yeah. uh, the time Fairmont. No, that was the last one. So when we met, uh, so I think I'm just a few years older than Andrew, but, uh, he was 16, I think maybe yeah. at the time beating everyone up. <laughs> just beating everyone up and I'm like this 16 year old kid's running through all the guys at the gym (laughs) and I was like and we could probably talk about this different tangent but I like to train with people that are good just as a chef you want to cook with people that are good because you learn more when someone's good versus when they're not good and I'm assuming the same thing applies in the gym so it's like Andrew was good I wanted to train with him because if I could beat up everyone in the gym but I can't beat him up then I should train with him more Mm -hmm, Um, so Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. He, it wasn't quite that lopsided. I, I had potential. But <laughs> when you were younger. Now, different. <laughs> Andre showed me a lot of my moves early on. Yeah, and he, he was constantly catching me. Like he, he was, He's a pretty smart dude, and I could tell that the way his brain worked was very analytical and very methodical and stuff like that. And, um, but that same mindset applies so much to cul- the culinary world, the cooking. Yeah, for me, I had spent a lot of years in gyms, and we were talking about a fighting night early on when I used to train at the same gym with Andrew. It was called Trainers Elite mm-hmm. in Dallas, and a lot of good fighters came through through there at the time. A lot of guys that were in Pride. Ken Shamrock did a training there for one of his Pride fights. Guy Mesger would go through there. Pete Spratt. A lot of guys that were in Pride and UFC would go through that gym, so we had access to watching them. See, back in the day when we did MMA, it was like the only way you could actually watch the sport was to go to Blockbuster and hope they had a f- cassette left because it was like the dark mm. era where they yeah. were banned and it was like on its last leg and Dana White hadn't come and bought it yet. So like anybody that was into fighting, it was like a fringe sport. Yep. It was like surfing or rock climbing. It might, you know what I mean? It's, really? It wasn't nearly as mainstream as it is now. Yeah, it, it was like an outcast thing for like bouncers and but it, was, uh, it wasn't what it is now. And at the time, there was only a couple of gyms that had a lot of pro fighters. Anybody in the Dallas scene 23 years ago has heard of Trainers Elite, knows the Lion's Den, all these names. Yeah, you know? I think there was like, maybe it was like Lion's Den, Trainers Elite, Fighter House, maybe. Yeah, Fighter's Fight, House. Fight, Fighter's yeah. House and then Molars. It was like, th- those are the yeah. only gyms you would have gone to back then. Yeah. And uh, anyway, so what does this have to do with anything? My first passion was not cooking. It was fighting. That's what I wanted to be in. Cooking was what paid the bills so I could train at the gym. And... 
because I was so into that gym culture when I was younger, the same thing crosses over into the culinary world. Your coach is your chef. The sous chefs in the kitchen are like your pro fighters. Your line cooks in the kitchen are like everyone else that's just training and wants to become pro. So they're the ones on the come up. But there's a certain level of respect in that hierarchy. Your coach tells you what to do. Yes, coach. Chef tells you what to do. Yes, chef. Right? You give shit down because the pro guy can talk shit to the amateur guy and he's going to take it because if he doesn't, there's repercussions in sparring. <laughs> yeah. The same thing applies in the kitchen. You wouldn't talk crap to your sous chef. Because they're going to smoke you on the line. They could out-hustle you. They cook faster than you. The same sort of gym mentality was really easy to translate into the kitchen. So that's why I think, because I understood that. And I would I would sit back and I'd watch the pro fighters that were really good. And, and I'd respect them. And I'd see how they would interact and how I would interact with them. And that those same interactions were the same ones that I would have with the chefs and the sous chefs coming up. So when... You're in a gym, and if you're very respectful to people, and you, Andrew could correct me if I'm wrong, but you go up to someone, you're like, hey, you want to spar hard? Because no, I don't know you. I don't want to spar hard. The same thing applies in the kitchen. You don't know shit, and you're going to go up to a chef and be like, can I get my dish on the menu? It's, it's the same sort of res levels of respect that you have in the gym also apply in the kitchen. So because I understood that social dynamic, it helped me be successful in the culinary social dynamic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It helped you rise up super fast, too, didn't it? Yeah, it did. And... Uh, I'm very competitive, so whether it's cooking or uh, in the gym or whatever, I just, I, I have this, I want to be the best. I'm very self-analytical, so I'll sit there and say, what did I do wrong in the kitchen today? W what could I do better? And I'll sit there and analyze, and I'll say yes to opportunities when they're presented. By the time I stepped away from cooking, I, I think I was 44 years old, so 27-year career, because I started very young. Yeah. And I had, under my belt, nine executive chef jobs from everything from being a, a partner in a restaurant, multiple awards, a member of the World Master Chef Society, James Beard Foundation, board member of Texas Food and Wine. I, I used to joke around and say I'm the I'm like the the best B-list chef. <laughs> I'm like the B-list guy. I have this this class called How to Lead Like an Executive Chef. It's not a master class, but it's it's kind of like a master. It's just not a master. I have a book independently published. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I did everything that your favorite chef did, just not as good as your favorite chef. Yeah. <laughs> but it, at that level, though, the actual skill of cooking is splitting hairs. The number one contender versus the champ or the one contender versus two. Yeah. So I would say like this. Not everyone makes it to the UFC. Right. There's all these other organizations. But when you get into the UFC, it's OK. You made it to the UFC. You're in the top, top percent. And then not everyone is going to be ranked. Mm in the top 10 and then not everyone's going to get a title shot and not everyone's ever going to be the champion. Yeah. So like your three Michelin star chefs are like UFC champions. Like not everyone will get that. Not everyone's going to get that three Michelin stars, but a lot of people will get James Beard awards and food and wine awards and all these other awards mm -hmm. that is like, Hey, I'm in the UFC. I'm top of the food chain. Yeah. I'm just not tippy top. Right. Real quick for our listeners, anybody that doesn't know anything about cooking, can you explain what Michelin star is? Yeah. So the Michelin guide uh, was, basically the tire company, right? The, the tire company's determining who are the best chefs and it's a ranking of one, two, and three stars. One stars, excellent. Just getting one Michelin stars, holy shit. Very impressive. Two stars is you're basically a three-star <coughs> chef and you need more time. And three-star chef is like the apex. You can't go higher than three stars. And a lot of chefs might be willing to cut off a, a pinky to get three stars, right? Yeah. It's, it's the apex of being a chef. But not every 
place has Michelin. For example, in the United States, the Michelin Guide is in New York, Chicago, Miami, Atlanta. I want to say they just went to Denver, but they're not in Texas. Okay. Not You could be an excellent chef. You might not have a Michelin star restaurant because you're not in a city that Michelin rates. And that's a whole other conversation. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha, it's like gotcha, sanctioning gotcha. bodies almost. Yeah. yeah. Does Austin have any Michelin restaurants? No, so there's no, no Michelin Guide in Texas, period. Oh, so um, I do. Okay, sorry. You none. None. Yeah. But the conversation has been on the table. Yeah. And I have intimate knowledge to that conversation that I can't share. Okay. Um, but I, I've heard egos are bruised. Yeah. <laughs> it's very political behind the scenes from what I've heard. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 I believe it. Now, there's a whole world, though, of Michelin star, but also like celebrity chef. And they're not always synonymous. Is that right? Or who would get more respect, a world renowned Gordon Ramsay type guy or a three star chef? It's, chef? it's going to depend who you're trying to get respect from. Okay. So if you are. And I'm just making this up, but if you're like enamored and your goal in culinary school is I want to be the next Gordon Ramsay, and you look at someone who has three Michelin stars, you're like, eh, no way, Gordon Ramsay's the man. I want to, I want that. Where someone else is gonna be like, Gordon Ramsay's not the man. I don't want to be on TV. I want to earn it in the restaurant. Which, by the way, Gordon Ramsay is a very successful chef. He also has three Michelin stars in his restaurant in London. I didn't know that. Yeah, so he's, wow. aside from the TV personality, he's a phenomenal chef, so mm. I don't want to sit here and discredit him, but just yeah. use that as the example. Some people don't want to be like Gordon Ramsay because of the stars. They want to be like him because he is a star. Yeah. Other people want to be like Thomas Keller because of the stars that he's earned. It's more, it's like you have this, which way, chef, left or right? Which way do you want to go? Do you want to pursue the the stardom or do you want to pursue accolades given to bestowed upon you by the media or the Michelin guide or the world's 50 best or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. So I was going to say th- there's a lot of in the kitchen world that mimics firefighting a lot. I've noticed, I think fighting mimics a lot of the art and the craft and mm-hmm. there is some sort of the brotherhood aspect of it, but the firefighting world is very rank based and structured and mm-hmm. like chef means chief and French, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's similar. There's a chief, and then below him, he might have two or three captains, and each of those captains is responsible for two or three lieutenants. And each one of those lieutenants each has a three-man crew underneath him. Mm. And so the span of command, the span, the span of control, chain of command. Um, I'm going to cut this piece off. Yeah. That, that's going to be the one that does that. Yeah, so a lot of your short-form content I really like because it'll be like, to the new guy starting out, you're essentially a white belt. When the yep. chef comes up to you and says your potatoes are peeled wrong. Don't give them a reason like, I peeled them this way because I, I read that the, or the yeah. chef doesn't care about what Why? you thought, mm. it's wrong, and just do it my, you know, kind of thing. And yes. that in firefighting a lot. Really? The lieutenant yeah. come over, hey, you threw that bundle wrong. I was trying to go around the, the stairs and I don't care, you did, you know, and, and yeah. uh, it's just a, the subtlety of ingraining yourself in these brotherhoods and working your way up. There's like a rank structure. Yeah. There's a way to be act. The military guys really understand this well because it's not just a unit or a kitchen. It's like a whole world of mm-hmm. bases and whatnot. But and not all chefs are right in what they do. By the way, that's cut up if you guys want to have more. Um, not fork theirs for you if you want to think about it. Thank you. Not, not all chefs are correct in, in from the standpoint of do it my way, because you're in my restaurant, which is the correct way to do it. If you're in someone's restaurant, the right way to do it is the way the chef wants you to do it. It doesn't matter, right? Mm -hmm. He's paying you. School's not paying you. Your last job's not paying you. What your opinion isn't paying you. I'm paying you. Do it that way. But the problem with that is is sometimes the chef is wrong, Mm -hmm. but you can't say anything. And sometimes that leads to dysfunction in the kitchen because the people who are working under you know better. And they know, hey, that's a hack move, or we could do it so much better and it's easier. And that leads to frustration with a lot of cooks 
one one thing that I say in my chef's PSA is it's better to be the worst cook in the best kitchen than the best cook in the worst kitchen. So you want to be around, if, if you want to be great, surround yourself around greatness. If you want to be a good chef, work around good chefs. If you want to run a certain type of, you want to be a three Michelin star chef, go work in a three Michelin star restaurant because you'll never learn that at the barbecue spot, mm. right? Two different skills. You want to be the best <coughs> barbecue chef, go work at Franklin's. You'll learn how to make barbecue at Franklin's, but you're not going to learn different skills for different kitchens. Um, but the but to Andrew's point is that it's a fine line because sometimes the culinary industry gets this bad reputation of the hierarchy is bad because of chefs like that tell you it's my way or the highway, yeah. but their way is not necessarily the best way. There is There are better ways, and sometimes the cooks coming up, the, the, the newer cooks in the kitchen, they have access to social media. They have access to podcasts. They have access to YouTube, so they know a more efficient way. But the chef who is not tech savvy and you know doesn't look at his phone, has a flip phone, He's, yeah, that's not how I want it done. I want it done this way that I've been doing it for the last 25 years or 30 yeah. years or whatever. You'll see that in firefighting a lot. You'll see officers that don't have a lot of respect to their crew, mm -hmm. and it creates tension. Mm -hmm. And it could be a personality conflict. It could be a skill issue. But for the most part, a good leader always has to lead by example, always has to lead from the front. And especially in this kind of world, you can't hide incompetence or lack of skill, not at that level. So how would that situation work, though, if that was the case where a chef was doing it one way, but people below him have access to social media, mm -hmm. but don't, can't really bring it up to him. How does that work? You said it creates a bunch of issues in the kitchen, but how does that end up working itself out? Do they just accept the fact that the higher chef does it wrong, or does it get to a point where they kind of butt heads and then one of them levels up? Every situation is going to be, it's, I say, it's not a cookbook answer. You can't follow the recipe and every, it works every single time. So what works in this kitchen with this person might not be the exact same thing that works in that kitchen with a different chef. Mm -hmm. Egos get involved. The most difficult thing to navigate is people, personalities and things like that. So what I always say is you don't have to like the person that you're working for to work for them. I've worked for plenty of people that I don't like, but you have to respect them. Because if you don't respect them and you also don't like them, there's no point in you being there. You shouldn't work for someone that you don't respect. You might like them, but don't respect them. Then why are you there? We could be friends outside, but if I don't respect you, then I don't want to work here. And I think if you're in one of those situations where the chef is telling you this is the way it is, if you respect that person, you might know that maybe they know something I don't know. Mm -hmm. Maybe they understand that the way that they want it works for this restaurant, for this particular goal, for the amount of staff that we have, for the amount of customers that we serve. They may know something that you don't know. So you have to humble yourself and say, maybe they're right and I just don't see the bigger picture right now. But if you don't respect them, then you're not even going to be willing to listen to them because you're going to think, what's the expression? Don't dismiss the wisdom with the wise because... They might tell you the sky is blue, but that guy's an asshole. So it doesn't matter that he says the sky is blue. It's not. Mm. So if you could, if there's a baseline of respect, you could work through some of those issues. But if there's no respect, then there's no point in you being in that kitchen because you'll never see eye to eye. They'll, like I said, they'll say the sky is blue and you'll say it's not. Establishing that baseline of respect, everything else becomes easier if that's there. If that's not mm -hmm. there, find a new job. Gotcha. Yeah. And this is a pretty serious industry. Like at the top end, you can make a really good income yeah like these executive chefs are making quarter million plus yeah i, I would say when you get into those big that's doctor pay vegas jobs and that's as an employee right so chef employees let's say because there's a difference between chef owner chef entrepreneur versus mm -hmm. chef employee someone's paying you they hired you a chef employee on the very top end could be making a quarter mil if they're let's just they're the chef at the venetian maybe more than that i don't know i don't know what they make but 
that's not out of the question. I know a chef that makes $350,000 a year for the restaurant that he runs. And that's a very top end restaurant. So that can happen. Or it could be 60,000 mm. or 50,000. So that range is, is pretty big. One chef could be making as executive chef 50,000. Another chef might be making 350. And that's an extreme end on the high side. Now, that's chef employee. Chef owner could be a millionaire, right? You could have multiple restaurants. You could be a brand. You could have an olive oil deal over here, and you could look like a NASCAR driver with all these sponsorships. And so you, at that point, you could be worth millions. So I think chefs right now need to understand that they are creating a brand. And that brand, so this is an example I would give. You're opening up a restaurant. So we're in Austin, Texas. You have prime real estate downtown, smack dab downtown and you want to open up a restaurant, and you're going to put $15 million into the real estate in the build, and you need to hire an exec chef. You have two candidates. One, on paper, has a steady track record of being a good executive chef. Like, he was the exec chef here, exec chef there, exec chef here. Good, consistent guy. The other candidate, oh, but by the way, this candidate with the track record has zero social media presence. He's a ghost. Does not exist. Can't find him anywhere. Can't find him on Google, LinkedIn, Instagram, nothing. The other chef might not be the best on paper with experience, but has 2 million followers on Instagram and a million followers on Twitter. Which one do you hire the one with 2 million followers because you're putting $15 million into this restaurant Yeah, and you need to, you need to make sure your investment is good. So you're going to hire the one with the social media presence. And that's an extreme example saying one person has the chops with no social media and the other person doesn't have the chops, but all social media, you could build a brand off that other person. And so my advice to chefs would be is like, don't dismiss that because as we move more and more towards your resume being digital, Instagram, LinkedIn, whatever, if you're not curating that, you could be potentially passing up money opportunities later on. And I think it's important that chefs understand that. Yeah. That's a huge part of what you do right now. Kind of transition from, you, chefing full time to social media full time. What was that like? And so for the first few months, when I first retired, I was like, "What the fuck am I going to do? I'm just chilling." I was in the beach in Puerto Rico, smoking cigars, chilling, and uh, I didn't know what I was going to do. So on my personal Instagram page, I would put up these chefs' PSAs as a joke between chefs. I wanted to make fun of one of my friends, so I'd put up the chefs' PSA. Hey, chefs' PSA, don't forget to season your steak or whatever the case may be. But it was just a joke. It was intended to just poke fun at people that I know. And one of my friends messaged me, a chef here in Austin by the name of Fermin Nunes. He runs Suerte and Este, two of the better restaurants in the city. Yeah. And so he DM'd me and he's turned this into a book. I'll buy it. And I have extreme OCD to, to almost to a detriment. I said, I'll do it. Now, for me, what I was, the reason I bring up the OCD is if I say I'm going to do it, I have to do it. I can't back out. And if I've committed to it, I will have to figure out how to publish a book, which mm-hmm. I'd never published a book, but I thought, how hard could it be to publish a book? So he wants it. So I got all my jokes, put them in a book, send them to someone like, hey, can you help me publish this? And then a few months later, I published my first book, which was titled Chef's PSA, How Not to Be the Biggest Idiot in the Kitchen. And it was basically like, don't don't call off on Valentine's Day. We know you're faking it. Shit like that. It was intended to be like tongue in cheek jokes. Um, and I didn't think it was going to catch. But it was just a way of me giving advice to people. Um, that turned into five books later, published audiobooks, um, and also I, I think five or six free ebooks that I give away, and a podcast, and social merchandise, and an AI app. And this joke 
that I put up on my Instagram story has now turned into my business. Yeah, that's yeah. so cool. Yeah, that's incredible. I'm sorry. It seems like you're taking the same mindset too from the fight gym, from the kitchen, now onto this stage. Yeah. So the idea of so here's like if I had an advantage is personal discipline. That is my superpower. Discipline is my superpower because I know every day when I wake up, whether I want to or not, I'm going to write. I have to write every day when I wake up. Sometimes it sucks, but I'm going to write every day. I'm going to do this every day. I'm going to do that every day. I'm going to post something every day. I'm going to tweet every day. And it's like the consistency. You look back and it's like, I could tell you what my method is because it might make a little bit more sense, but I have a, a big poster board with a bunch of sticky notes on it. And every time I accomplish something, it goes up there. Or I have another poster board with things that need to get accomplished, and it goes from this poster board to the other one. When I needed to write a book, the first book that I was like going to take serious, not the joke book, but the mm -hmm. real book, the second one I wrote titled Culinary Leadership Fundamentals, which was, like I said, the first one was a joke book. The second one was like, okay, let me really teach you how to be chefs and manage food costs and all that. And so the second book, what I did is I got all these sticky notes, and I was like, we need a chapter on food costs. We need a chapter on... Uh, labor costs. We need a marketing strategy. And I just put sticky notes all over it. And I ended up with 30 sticky notes. And every day, time to write, just take one sticky note. That's all I'm going to write about. That's smart. Yeah. By the by, 30 days, I wrote a 200-page book, but it didn't feel like a 200-page book because I just had to write about that one thing that one day and then set the timer, done, walk away. And so the consistency when I look back <clears throat> on everything that I've been able to do with this chef's like PSA has everything to do with the fact that I show up every day. It's the same thing in the kitchen. You show up every day consistently. Good days, bad days, doesn't matter. You're going to show up anyway. You got slapped in the face, doesn't matter. You're still going to work. You got slapped in the face, you're still going to the gym. You're still going to spar. Yeah. You're still going to cook. You're still going to write. doesn't matter. So even when things are hard, uh, I like that Mike Tyson quote. It's like doing uh, discipline is doing the thing that you don't want to do, but doing it like you love it. That has been my secret to success is the fact that I will do it every day because I have that OCD that says I have to do it every day. I can't turn it off, I unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, let's go ahead and spark these cigars up. Yeah, sorry, I was doing that while you were talking. No, you're good. Oh, no. These were a gift from Andre. Andre, what are these again? Escobar cigars. You're familiar? It's two of my favorite things. I know you guys like smoking cigars. I like smoking cigars. I also love hip-hop, hip-hop yeah. music. And Nas is one of my favorite rappers. Yeah. So this is Nas's brand of cigars. Really? Yeah. That's yeah. cool. I saw him live actually one time. Uh, he was pretty good. Did you go to, so there's the New York State of Mind, Nas and Wu-Tang. I think uh, that was it, actually. He was with Wu-Tang. Was it recently? I went there, too. Not, it was, a, it was many years ago. It was in Dallas. Oh. Yeah, it happened recently, and here in Austin, maybe, really? maybe last year I went. Yeah, it was great. So, uh, I like Escobar cigars. It's uh, a tribute to two things that I love, hip-hop, um, cussing. Yeah. <laughs> hip-hop, cussing, and, and cigars. I like to say, let's cuss and discuss. <laughs> oh, I like that. Yeah. Go ahead. I, I was going to say, you mentioned that you were super OCD, and we talked a little bit about it downstairs, but you're a big morning routine guy. Morning routine guy. I know I am, too. Do you just want to talk about how something like that might have helped your come up or could help somebody else's come up that isn't super disciplined with themselves? Yeah, so I'll give you a tip on that I was given for building willpower, and then I'll get into what my routine is. And I would start out with this one little caveat. The best thing about me is my morning routine, and it's the thing that I love the most, but it's also the thing that I hate the most okay. because I can't turn it off. That's the problem. I'll do all this stuff, but I also I can't not do it. And mm -hmm. when I don't do it, I feel like something's off. My, mm -hmm. my whole day is screwed up if I didn't do this one thing. 
So the advice that a friend of mine gave me, who's very intelligent and someone that mentors me, we were talking about willpower. What he said to me was this idea of cognitive dissonance. If you say you're going to go to the gym and you never go to the gym, then your brain says, okay, if he says he's going to go to the gym, don't go. Mm. So it's, so your actions and your words are opposites. So your brain thinks do the opposite of what he says. That's how we operate. So he said, if you want to correct that, start small, say, I'm going to brush my teeth then brush your teeth. I'm going to open the door, then open the door. So then your body-mind connection starts to correct itself. So you say you're going to do it, you actually do it. So your mind says, okay, let's do what we say we're going to do. And you start small and you grow to bigger things. You say, okay, today I'm just going to do one push-up. You do the one push-up. You don't say something stupid. Today I'm going to do a thousand when you know you're not. And the key to that was, he said, if you know you're not going to do it, let's say we said, today we're going to go to the gym. And then you know you're not going to go to the gym because... You just got lazy. He says, then say, I changed my mind. I'm not going to go to the gym. Yeah. That's the loophole. So like you're now you're holding true to your word all the time, right? Okay. So I'm like, going to start using that. That yeah. was the psychological <laughs> trick to build willpower and discipline. Now, so what my morning routine looks like is wake up in the morning. The first thing I do is I read. First thing, I'm reading a book. Okay. So I read a chapter. Boom. Then I meditate. I do a yoga breath work for about 30 minutes. That's next. Then after yoga breath work, I start checking my phone, respond to some emails, DMs, whatever. Boom. Next thing I go into the kitchen, I eat the same breakfast every day. Really doesn't change. It's a few almonds, some fruit, cup of coffee. It's on autopilot. I know what I'm going to eat. It's reasonably healthy. Stick to that. Then while I'm doing all that, I'm listening to an audiobook. The audiobook's playing. I read a book, so that's book number one. Now I'm on book number two on audio. Do that while I'm making my breakfast or whatever. And then I'll jump on the computer, check the blogs that I frequent, read the financial news, whatever. And then I play Lumosity, which is like brain puzzles and things like that. I feel like that warms up my brain for the day. So that's about 30 minutes of brain puzzles. Then I go, while I'm doing that, I'm also listening to the audiobook while I'm playing math games or whatever. Now I go to the couch, I move rooms, and I read book number three. So I read mm. five pages of book number three. So now the audiobook, the one that I first read when I woke up, audiobooks number two, and then now I'm reading book number three. After I'm done reading that, the five pages that I've committed to, put that away. I play Duolingo for about 15 minutes, practice a new language. Then I play this other brain game, which is math, reading, uh, writing, et cetera. It's called, uh, what is it called? Elevate. So I've used Elevate. So I use Elevate. I play a couple of games on Elevate. Okay, so Duolingo, Elevate, three books, breath work for 30 minutes. Still not done. Then it's time to play chess. So I play usually one game of chess, Blitz, done, but sometimes one game could turn into 30 games if I get yeah. distracted, right? So yes. I just, I lost. Keep going until you win. And then I keep losing. Keep going until you win. So now I've played uh, a few games of chess, and then I start to work. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 
How long does this take you? Three hours. Three hours. Okay, that's so, pretty. That's actually a lot for three hours. Yeah, yeah. So three hours, and every day includes three different books. So I average about a book a week, right? So people say I read about fifty-two books a year, whether it's audio or old-school reading with your eyes. Mm-hmm. You think it, there's a difference between the two? Yeah, yeah, I do. Now that I listen to audio books. And I read also. I feel like I retain more of the audio books than I do with the ones that I read. Really? Really? Mm-hmm. I think most people would assume maybe the other way. Yeah. This is this maybe this is just a me thing, but I keep track of everything that I that I read, and what's funny is because so let's just say I read fifty two books a year. Or I finish fifty two books a year. Over the course of time, now we're in the hundreds, and I'll be like, look, and I write them all down, and then I'll go back and be like, I read that. I don't remember reading that. I'm realizing that there may be a disadvantage to the quantity thing. Maybe I need to read fewer books and spend more time on them. So I'm noticing this now. Instead of trying to read three books a day, maybe I should just one. And when you're done with that one, go to the next one because now I'm getting input from three. I'm reading this book. I'm reading reading The Art of War. I'm listening to something by... The magic of thinking big mm-hmm. and then I'm, I'm, I'm reading something else and it's like i got all these three books but like what's being retained yeah um so i'm i'm on the fence with that so anyway to your original question that's what the morning routine likes looks like that was the willpower exercise to be able to do it but the problem is it takes three hours so when i was a chef if i had to be at work at six in the morning and i can't miss the morning routine that mean i had to wake up like at 2 30 in the morning to get it done mm-hmm. which was a problem yeah yeah so do you find that it's hard to shut your brain off at night? Because obviously you're like a very cerebral dude. You're training your brain like it's a bodybuilder almost. Yeah. You almost have to, though. Your brain is a muscle. If you don't use it, you lose it. I have a very small, weak brain, I think, in comparison <laughs> to Andre. I, don't do any of I say that a lot of times I, ha- I do play chess in the morning. And I find that when I'm sipping my morning coffee or tea, it's a nice mental uh, like warm-up. You know? We need a lighter. Need? Uh, oh, uh, yeah. Here. Just slide it now. Wow, we so got Corbin's brother, Kale, off camera. He joined us today. Yeah, I'll do chess in the morning. I do find okay. that it's a nice mental exercise to get the brain pumping with, but that, oh, it's still fun. the top. There's a little cap on the top. Uh, look. It's on one. It's kind of... Here, let me see. Yeah, thank you. So why do you read before you meditate? Um, Is there a reason for that? No. I'm interested in this, too, because I found... I, I don't like reading in the morning before I meditate because whenever I'm reading a book, then I get the information and then I start thinking about all these different scenarios where I can apply it in different areas of my life. Mm-hmm. And so when then I sit down to meditate to try to calm my brain and not think about anything, I find it much more difficult mm. to just make it shut up so yeah. I can just breathe through it. So I'm interested in this. I don't know why. I think... It- I've never put a whole lot of thought into why the reading before the meditation, there's there's no logic behind it. It's just that's the way the morning routine. Okay. And I, because I'm a person of routine, mm-hmm. I started that way before I added the meditation in. So meditation got added in after that. Yeah. And so I'm a room by room person. Um, so when I wake up, I'm in my bedroom. The book is right there by my nightstand. Yeah. I have to read that as soon as I wake up. And then the, the meditation chair is a few feet away. The computer room's the next room. The You, you know, so my yeah. morning routine follows my path in the morning. So it's not necessarily, um, I wish I had a, no, a good that, answer, it's, but no. It's just what works for you. Okay. Do you have a night routine? 
Do you have a similar closing down shop kind no. of thing? No, and I won't add one because I know how <laughs> It'll spiral out of control. Yeah. yeah, because I, like I said, my favorite thing is my morning routine because I know multiple languages because of the Duolingo that I've been doing for years, right? I could carry on a conversation in other languages. I'm pretty good at chess because yeah. I play chess every day. I have pretty good math scores and all this other stuff. I'm a mm -hmm. decent writer because I write every day. Like all these things are designed to make me a better version of me. But on the flip side, if I add a PM routine, I know I'm like, I need an unwind routine. That's mm -hmm. what I really should do is focus on sleep because what ends up happening, I'm like most people, I end up looking at Twitter all night. Like I'm laying yeah. in bed, scrolling, seeing what's happening in the rest. And Twitter's a fucking dumpster fire. Yeah. But I love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like a dumpster fire, but you're like grilling s'mores over it. So you can't leave. They got s'mores yeah. over the dumpster fire. It's delicious. <laughs> yeah. Twitter's interesting. It is. It a lot is different. Yeah. No, I, I love what you said about the, uh, sorry, I'm backtracking a little bit. Uh, I love what you said about the sticky notes. So one yeah. of the whole reasons that I was interested in starting this podcast was finding interesting guests and getting information that I can apply to my own life. And not not just me, but anybody that's listening to this, mm -hmm. I love what you said about the sticky notes just to get things done. Having all those things on the board, all the things you need to do, basically your to-do list, you write them down as they come up in your everyday life, things that you need to do, and then every morning just pick one thing and do it, one thing and do it. I love that. When I was first starting my business, um, it, it, and I needed to know all these things, like, okay, what do I need to do? I need to start a, you know, a website. I need an email. I need, a, I need an LLC, right? And so I had a sticky note, like, I don't know how to get an LLC, but on the thing, you'll figure it out. Yeah. Even if it mm -hmm. takes you the whole day to figure out how to get an LLC, you're going to get one. And then you need an EIN, and you need your, your trademark and your DBA, and so all that, if you don't know how to do any of it, if you are starting a business right now and you don't know where to begin and you and, and then you do a Google search and you say, what do I need to do to start a business? OK, you need a, an EIN, a, a DBA, a LLC, and you got to get a business bank account and a website and shit. I, I'm all right. I'm just going to keep being an employee. Right. Yeah. It's just easier. The path of least resistance is I'll just keep punching the clock. That seems like a lot of work and I don't know where to begin. But if you put all those on sticky notes and today you just got to get that LLC, that's it. You have all day to figure that out. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you could figure out how to do that one thing. And if you don't figure yeah. it out, guess what? Stays. Tomorrow yep. you figure it out too. Yeah. And so all of a sudden, all these things that may seem extremely difficult to do now seem pretty easy. Mm -hmm. And yeah, this was pre-chat GPT. And now it's like you got the motherboard pumping in your veins to make you smarter. You go on chat GPT and say, oh, today's project is getting an LLC. How do I do that? Here are the steps. Give me a website. Here you go. Yeah. I think that's what separates the winners from the losers mm -hmm. is the people that are willing to dig down and go through the shit mm -hmm. and figure it out. And then there's the people that see all that and they're like, that's too much. Let's just stay safe. Let's stay easy. Yeah. That's what separates the two. It's so easy to fall into the path of least resistance because it's fun. It's comfortable. The yeah. bed is warm. Someone tells me what to do. I don't got to think. I could just go to work. And when you have to stand on your own two feet, that's the greatest superpower. It's like being able to pick and choose. Like for me, the fact that I have a three-hour morning routine, but I could wake up whenever I want and still get, <laughs> yeah. I, don't have to, I don't have to be at work so early. It's one of the more liberating feelings to have freedom, right? Mm -hmm. And knowledge how to do things. My business right now, the Chef's PSA, all the skills that I learned along the way from marketing to social, social media to starting a brand, if it all collapsed, I still have those skills. Yeah. I can now try, I'm going to get into cigar making, just making that up. I know where to begin. If you've enjoyed that podcast and you want to listen to the rest of it,
I left in the show notes a link to watch it on YouTube or listen to it on Spotify. Make sure you go subscribe to the Proper Thieves podcast. I expect big things from them. The rest of the episode, we talk everything UFOs, creativity, philosophy. We go down the rabbit hole. It gets fun. Make sure you go to chefspsa.com and get all the books and all the merch. Get the books that you're missing, including the free ebooks. They're free. Go get them. We'll see you next week. Hit the porno music. 